Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Very excited about today's program. My brother Dermot, who's the CEO of Buffini Company, said to me the other day, he said, Brian, who do you want to have on your show? He said, you do all these things for the customers. Who do you want to have on your show? If you're just in the studio or yourself talking to somebody. And I said, well, there's a fellow I started listening to by the name of Jocko Willink, and he's a former Navy SEAL. And sure enough, relationships are everything. We have a good friend of ours named Andrew Paul, who has a great relationship with Jocko. So, Jocko, we're very thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for popping by. Thanks for having me on. Living in San Diego. Let me give folks who may not be as familiar with Jocko just yet a little bit of his background. 20 years with the U.S. Navy SEALs. I don't know if I need to say more than that. Started out as an enlisted guy, worked his way up. He was the commander of the SEAL Team 3 with a very famous task unit bruiser, which just sounds like what it should. Most highly decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. And uh, after retiring from his 20-year career, Jocko founded Echelon Front, where he teaches leadership principles he learned on the battlefield to help others lead and win. He's co-authored the number one best-selling book, Extreme Ownership. That's the first one of yours I read. Fantastic. And then uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership, which is another terrific book on leadership. And something we're going to get into today, he's written three awesome kids' books, which is, you know, he's a big, rough, tough, exactly what you'd picture a Navy SEAL should look like. And uh, I'm definitely excited to get into how you got into the children's book business. But... um. Your podcast, you, you started that years ago. It's one of the most successful podcasts in the world. Millions of people tuning in to that thing every month. So it's quite a, a ride you're on, isn't it? It's been interesting, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, nothing that started out with a business plan. Just, I'm going to do the right things for the right reasons, and the market responded. So give us a little background, where it all started for you, where you grew up, what childhood was like. For Jocko Willink. Grew up in a small New England town yeah. on, a, on a dirt road. My parents were school teachers. I was a pretty rebellious kid, to put it lightly. As soon as I had the opportunity, I wanted to get away from my hometown. And the quickest way for me to do that was to join the military. Wow. So I joined the Navy when I was 18 years old. Wow. And enlisted. I, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL. I got a contract that got me a shot at going to the basic SEAL training. And that's what I did. Wow. Were you a good athlete in high school? I was an average athlete in high school. I right. wasn't, wasn't great at anything. I played soccer and basketball, okay. and it wasn't spectacular at either one of them, partially because I didn't really care that much about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days, of course, if you have kids, if yeah. you want your kids to excel, they have to, they have to be doing the sport year-round. They're really hyper-focused on sports these days, the kids are. But, you know, when I was growing up, I just played in the season. You know, yeah. it's soccer season, cool, I'll go play soccer. It's basketball season, I'll go play basketball. So I wasn't great at either one of them. Yeah. You know, strong average. I knew you want to get away, you want to go and find your spot. What was it about the SEALs that just, at 18 years of age, you know, that's what I want to do? You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Maine as a mm-hmm. kid. And when I was a kid up in Maine, I had a, a lifeguard guy that taught me how to surf up in Maine. So I was comfortable in the water, and I liked the water. And I wanted to be stationed somewhere where they were surfing because they're surfing in Maine. It's not bad, but it's not great. And yeah. you know, when I was a kid, I would see pictures in Surfer Magazine of California and really wanted to go there. Of course, when you're a kid, 
when you're growing up and your parents are school teachers, I mean, we didn't go anywhere for vacation. Like, right. It didn't happen. <laughs> so to think that you could actually go and go to California and actually somehow live there, mm-hmm. it seemed like a great choice. So I knew that the SEAL teams were stationed either in San Diego, California or Virginia Beach, Virginia. Right. So I said, yeah, that sounds like the one. Yeah. And of course, I heard that it was the hardest training, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go through the hardest training and be a part of the most elite team. Now that I'm in, or once I was in, I realized you know all the services have incredibly right. hard training, and they have incredible guys in the Army, in the Navy, in the Air Force, and in the Marine Corps. There's exceptional guys in each one of those service branches, and, and not even just in special operations, but in, in the entire, you know, in the Army, there's infantry soldiers. There's just great people in the military, yeah. so... I was lucky enough to join when I was young. Well, it's funny. I was on a conference call here recently. I'm part of a group that employs 75,000 people. And every one of the business owners was asked what they're looking for when they're hiring people. And there's all this conversations. They're hiring Ivy League and this and the other. And I said, here's what I look for. I look for someone who worked when they went to school. I look for someone who maybe played a sport because it's you had this additional thing. You were part of a team. And the third thing is we look for military people. Mm-hmm. Not only do we have military people, we have a bunch of military spouses in our company. That's and awesome. I'll tell you. They're the bomb.com, discipline, hard work, that whole thing. So, you know, you get in, and all of a sudden, here you are, you're going through this, you're 18 years of age, you don't know anything about the world, and you're dropped into the most intense environment possible. Now, your own podcast, you do a fantastic job of going through the dynamics of warfare and so on and so forth. How does a kid go from there all the way through not just his career in the military, but dealing with the challenges of warfare, dealing with the, the stresses of it. How does a kid from where you grew up end up walking through that process and growing through that process? That's what the military does. The military trains you to be as prepared as you can possibly be for those situations. And the training that I went through, and when I talk about the training for the SEAL teams, I'm not talking about the basic training that yeah. you see on TV where you can butts around. You, you actually don't learn anything during that. Right. You, you learn how to suffer, I guess, and you learn how to push yourself harder, but right. it, there's no tactical knowledge. Just weeding out it, it Just people. weeding out people that yeah. don't really want to be there. Yeah. And, and even then, you still get people that make it through that they're making it through for the wrong reasons or they've figured a way to skate through. So just because someone was a SEAL doesn't give them the stamp of being a good human being. There's right. all kinds of SEALs and other military people that are not good human beings. But you end up on a team, or I ended up on a team, and then that's when you start your real training, where you're learning to shoot, move, and communicate. You're learning to fire and maneuver. You're learning to close with and destroy the enemy. So that's what happened. I spent my whole adult life, and by the way, I was in the SEAL teams for 13 years before I shot my weapon at the enemy. So Mm -hmm. that's 13 years of me trying to train and be prepared for combat. And when I did get in combat, I was prepared. So here's the question, because one of the things you're best known for today would be discipline. I mean, people associate that word with you all the time. And you were the rebellious, seemed like somewhat undisciplined teen. Was it the structure that gave you discipline, or was it a shift in mindset? Where did you go from being the kid that wanted to do whatever the heck he wants to do to being the ultimate discipline guy? You know, interestingly, one of the primary forms of rebellion for me as a kid was to be highly disciplined was to be disciplined. So where other kids were out drinking and doing drugs, mm. I was not doing that. And I was actually against them and looked, I don't want to say looked down on them, but I rejected that thing. Mm. And really growing up in a small New England town, there was very few people that joined the military. So even joining the military was a rebellious thing to do. 
and my parents certainly didn't expect me to join the military. So when I joined the military, that was a rebellious thing. And what it was doing was making me more and more disciplined and allowing me to find the path of discipline that I think I wanted and I think I knew I needed. And I tried to give it to myself and I moved down that pathway somewhat. And then when you get in the military, if you open your eyes and you look around and you look at who's good performers, you realize that the good performers are the highly disciplined individuals. I want to kind of key off there for a bit because I think there's so much to the word. You know, it seems like whether it be political correctness, lack of accountability, those kinds of terms. It's like the military are the last guys in the world that are allowed to even talk about this subject, it seems, in a lot of ways. For me, I just feel like nothing happens without discipline. I, nothing happens without fundamentals. No excellence happens in any capacity. You've utilized the discipline you had from the SEALs to now build this very successful post-military career. I mean, you're killing it. How do you approach discipline and the daily discipline? Everybody you know, wants to talk about a morning routine, and we'll dive in there a bit. But how do you approach discipline and, and self-discipline for yourself? I look at discipline as a non-negotiable fact that I will carry out. Mm -hmm. I love it. Don't make any deals. The other side of that is we're a war-class excuse generation, right? For sure. You know, I want to get up, but it's cold. My hamstring's a little tight, you know? All your excuses are lies. Mm. What do you mean by that? I mean what I just said. Yeah. All your excuses are lies. That you tell They're yourself. just lies that you're telling yourself. Yeah. And so don't negotiate with weakness. Just destroy it. Nice. I love it. <laughs> yeah, don't screw around with it. You know, it's funny. Do you know Dick and Ricky Hoyt? Does that name ring a bell? The son is a spastic quadriplegic. The dad pushes them. They do Ironman triathlons together. I do not know them. Yeah, great people. So they've done the Ironman triathlon a bunch of times. They've run the Boston Marathon about 30 times. Awesome. So the kid can't talk, can't move. The father puts him in a boat and swims the mm -hmm. 2.4 miles, puts him in a chair and runs the 26 miles, That's puts awesome. him on a chair and a bike, does 112 miles. They were up in New Hampshire, Lake Winnipesaukee. Mm -hmm. And I said to him one time, I was interviewing him, I said, so how do you do this? Because when he first started doing the, the triathlon, he couldn't swim. You know, you have to swim, he has to pull his kid in the raft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you do that? He goes, I just made up my mind. And I said, well, okay, well, tell me about that. He goes, I just made up my mind. I said, well, okay, well, like you're drowning and all this stuff. He goes, I just made up my mind. The magic of that interview, I did that about 15 years ago, I thought, it's not that complicated. No, it's not. He doesn't have a therapist. He's not going to the latest you know, guru or whatever. Else. It's just he made up his mind. And sometimes we come in contact with that, that uncompromising resolve and the steel and the structure. And I think, to be honest with you, that's why I think what you're doing with the podcast and your books is blowing up. Because I think people are starving for that. And I think people actually want to, rather than get the warm fuzzy and the pat on the back, they want to be told... Just please do it. Yeah, well, the important part of that is that the warm fuzzy and the pat on the back don't actually get you anywhere. Mm. So it might feel good at the moment, but you don't make any progress. You don't get to where you want to be. Right. So the way you get where you want to be is by imposing discipline on yourself and doing what you're supposed to do every single day. That's mm. how you get where you want to be. So for you, give me an example of your disciplines today. What would be a, a day in the life of Jocko Willing today? I'd say the most important one for me is I wake up early in the morning. Yeah. I do some kind of physical activity. So for me, that's working out. I wrote a book about all that stuff. I wrote a book about this whole subject. I wrote a book called sure. Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. The reason I wrote sure. that is because I got asked these questions yeah. on social media, on interviews, the same questions over and over and over again. Well, how do you get out of bed in the morning? And of course, how do I get out of bed in the morning? This is the answer. 
You set your alarm clock. When the alarm clock goes off, you get out of bed. That's what you do. You don't think about it. You don't negotiate with it. Mm-hmm. You don't rationalize anything. You turn off your brain and you do what you're supposed to do. Right. Because like you said, we're experts at making excuses and you can rationalize anything. As a human being, you can rationalize any behavior. Right. Don't do it. You know what you're supposed to do. Get up and go do it. So that's what I do. I get up early in the morning. I do some kind of workout. I usually see my kids off to school. I am usually writing a book. In fact, I've been writing books for an extended period of time. I've always have, I always have a book that I'm working on. Sure. So I'm going to knock out a thousand words. Wow. A thousand words takes me about an hour. Love it. Yeah. And then I'm doing what I do for work, which is I've got a bunch of businesses and they're all got things going on and they all have problems to be solved and fires to be put out and progress to be made. And so I interact with all the different team members on various businesses and we move forward. Right. And just, we get her done. Indeed. You know, it's funny, you know, the old phrase, U.S. government always said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah. And when you're saying, you know, excuses are lies, we're basically an onboard terrorist. Yeah. So the key is no negotiation with yourself. You've made your decisions ahead of time. That's called your plan. You've said what you're going to go do. And the minute you, whether it's getting out of bed, go to work out, so on and so forth, your mind is set. And no more to discuss. And I think that right there is the crevasse that the vast majority of people fall into every day. And that's why sometimes they're like, give me the morning routine. Oh, the magic is in the morning routine. I think the magic is in the mindset that it's already decided. You have decided it's done. This is going to happen. This workout's going to happen. Thousand words. It's going to happen. It's very specific. You're not going to write a book today. You're not going to write a, a bestseller today. All you can focus on is writing a thousand words. Yeah. And sometimes, for people who haven't written a book, sometimes you're staring at the screen and it's like, it's a white light staring back at you. You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to chip away, chip away. Ogmandino, the great Ogmandino, wrote the greatest salesman in the world, right? 54 million copies of his books in the second half of the 20th century. He was actually an Air Force pilot that flew with Jimmy Stewart, got depressed didn't know what PTS was at that time, whatever else, drinking, yada, yada, ends up losing a marriage, losing his family, getting ready to lose his life, has a change of life, decides he's going to be a writer. His mom always told him, you're going to be a great writer one day. He's living in his car, and that's when he started writing his thousand words a day. Is that what he wrote? Did he write a thousand words a day? He wrote a thousand words a day. That was Augmenting in 1964, and went on to become the editor of Success Magazine. Next thing you know, he's busy as I'll get out. So he said, all right, I got to get up at four in the morning and write a thousand words a day. You know, the greatest salesman in the world went on to sell 36 million copies at a time when there was no social media, no internet, no marketing, and wrote beautiful fables and beautiful words. But you're sitting there, you're laughing because, you know, you came to this thing of a thousand words a day and, you know, success leaves clues. Success leaves clues. Everybody wants to have the success of Agmandino. Very few people want to get up at 4.30 in the morning and write a thousand words. And so there's a fellow who was living in his car to become the most successful author of the 20th century. Yeah. And an important part of that, too, is the thousand words a day. When you look at a book, I'll say a book is between, an average book is maybe 80 to 100,000 words. Right. And, and that's a lot of words. Yeah. A thousand words is one one hundredth of that, right? Yeah. It's one one hundredth of that. So when you write that thousand words, you really barely even notice that you did it because it doesn't really stack up that high. Mm-hmm. It's two pages. It barely even amounts to anything. Then you look up in a month and you got 30,000 words. Mm. Then you look up in three months and you have a book. Yeah. Three months. And it, there it is. Sure. It costs you 90 hours, mm. right? For me, like I said, I write about a, a thousand words an hour. Sure. I've heard that that's a lot. 
It is. And if a thousand words takes you two hours and that's too much, cool. Write 500 words a day. Right. It'll take you a little bit longer. But you have to, as you said, you have to chip away at these things because one thing I don't advise doing is trying to sit down and write a book for nine hours at a time. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll go crazy. Yeah. Now, some people write like that. That's yeah. fine. But for me, that's a long time to be sitting, staring at a computer screen, trying to type. I, I don't enjoy that. Try to figure it out. So then the discipline shows up throughout your life and throughout your work life, and then it shows up in this leadership style. And I, I want you to touch on a little bit on the whole dichotomy of leadership. You learned grassroots. You were an enlisted guy. You went up through. You, you became an officer. You had a chance to lead men. Then you became a teacher and a trainer of the, of the trainers themselves, and you've translated that very well. Talk about the discipline in regards to how it applies to leadership. As far as discipline goes with leadership, well, first of all, the way you lead yourself, if you're undisciplined, you can't expect to have any high standards for anyone else. So you have to set the example. And by the way, if you think that you can get away with being a little bit late and your people won't notice, or you think you can look like a slob or not be prepared for a meeting, if you think that they won't notice that or that's okay because you're the boss, you're completely wrong. And I'm telling you this because when I was a young enlisted guy, not just me. Every young enlisted guy with me, any mistake that our bosses made, we would pick those guys apart. Mm. And we might not say anything to them, but our respect level for them was Mm. going down. Now, as far as discipline goes inside of an organization, discipline is mandatory inside of an organization. So you have to have standard operating procedures of the way you're going to do things. Just like you have standard operating procedures in your life that you have to stick to in the business world or in any kind of team. You have to have standard operating procedures. You have to have discipline inside that team. So if you saw my SEAL platoon when I was a platoon commander or my SEAL task unit when I was a task unit commander, we had highly disciplined standard operating procedures for everything that we did. The way we lined up our vehicles, the way we loaded up our vehicles, the way we exited our vehicles, the way we approached buildings, the way we entered buildings, everything was a standard operating procedure. And you stuck to that procedure. And you might think to yourself, well, that really has got to constrain you on the battlefield. You know, that's got to feel, how are you going to do what you need to do if you always have to stick to the same thing? Well, the answer to that is there's a dichotomy. And that's, the dichotomy is you have to have that discipline because that discipline inside your organization will actually give you freedom Mm -hmm. because you'll know how to handle these situations. So if I wanted you, Brian, to go take down a building that we hadn't planned to take down, I could just say, Brian, go hit that building over there. And you wouldn't need to tell me who you were going to bring with you or what weapons you were going to use or what method you were going to use to enter the building. You didn't need to tell me any of that because I already knew. Mm-hmm. And you didn't need to tell your troops either because all you need to say is, hey, we're hitting that building. We're going in the north door. As soon as you say that, everyone knows what's happening. Trained, prepared. Everyone understands yeah. the standard yeah. operating procedures. So even though it seems like they'll keep us constrained, they actually give right. us freedom. Right. Now, can you go too far with that? And this is why we wrote the dichotomy of leadership. Because you take any characteristic that a leader can have, any of them, and if you go to the extreme with it, it can become a negative. Mm. So what's a common positive characteristic for a leader? You have confidence, right? Mm -hmm. A good leader has confidence, for sure. What if they go too far with that? Well, now they become arrogant, cocky. They don't respect their opponent. They don't respect their competitor. They don't respect the enemy. They're not working as hard. They're not training as much. And that's when you get caught and killed. Mm -hmm. So there's a really obvious example. Another one is as a leader, you've got to be able to communicate well with your team. Well, is there such a thing as a leader that communicates too much? 
Yes, there absolutely is. We see this all the time in the modern world where the leader's sending out 48 emails before anyone shows up to work and people get to work. I can't read through 47 emails. I have a job I'm trying to do. Oh, they're from the CEO. It doesn't matter if you want me to do my job. So now you've communicated too much and you've taken it to the extreme. The other end of the spectrum is you never communicate with the people at all. Right. And now we have a problem because no one knows what's going on. Where do you want to be? You want to be somewhere in the middle. You want to be balanced. And that's what the dichotomy of leadership is about. And we specifically wrote that book because our first book, and again, I'm saying we because I wrote these books with my buddy Leif Babin who was in the Battle of Ramadi with me. The first book is called Extreme Ownership. Very simple title. You take extreme ownership of everything that's going on, right or wrong. If you're in charge, you own it. Well, that title, extreme, people took that sure. and started taking to everything, an everything to an extreme. Right. And that becomes a problem. And that's why we wrote the dichotomy of leadership to explain to people, no, yes, you need to be disciplined, yeah. but you can't be overly disciplined with your troops. Otherwise, they'll stop making decisions on their own. They won't be able to adapt to anything. So that's where the dichotomy of leadership came out. And that's where discipline falls in. Back to your original question. Right. Discipline falls in to leadership in that, yes, it's absolutely mandatory. But you can't take it to extreme, otherwise it'll be too much. And again, for me, extreme ownership to me was the ultimate in taking accountability, taking responsibility for your life. You know, you own it. It's your life. You get one go around. Here's all the dynamic. No excuses. Stop telling yourself lies. You own your life. And, you know, the truth is it's very easy. When we listen to the lies, we get a chance to become some version of a victim, some version of this happened to me or you know, someone's struggling with their weight. Well, it's the DNA. It's the, I'm big boned. It's my family's this. I'm lactose intolerant. Great, don't drink milk. You know, and it's like, you have to make those choices. The dichotomy of leadership to me is, is looking at the dynamic of the balance that it brings to having the rules, having the SOP, having the disciplines, and then also having the ears open, having some common sense. For me, being a good leader shows up at home first. If I can't manage myself, I can't manage anybody else. And the second dynamic shows up in being a parent. I've said for years, my kids don't listen to a word I say. They're too busy watching what I do. And if I continue to work on myself and do the right things and grow in the areas I'm supposed to grow in, the kids tend to do the same thing. And so it's like that trailing effect. It's like the fellow um, St. Augustine used to say, share the gospel at all times, only use words if absolutely necessary. You know, we've met a bunch of people that all they do is share the gospel, but their own life or their own example or whatever is not great. And so it's, it's living it out. The transition I want to get to, which is fascinating, because I have a great heart for young people. How does a big, rough, tough Navy SEAL who's got all of these disciplines and leadership pieces and doing all these talks to big, giant companies and building training programs for them, has a gym in San Diego that's become very famous for people to go and get the Jocko workout. How does he end up writing kids' books? That is like a 180. How in the world did that happen? I have four kids. <laughs> I have four kids. And, you know, you just gave yourself the answer, which is when you've got kids, you've got to lead those kids. You're a leader at home. And so, well, you have kids. I know you have six kids. <laughs> and when you have kids, you're going to have to get books for your kids to read. And so I have kids. And as I went out and tried to find books that I wanted my kids to read that kind of I thought would instill the kind of values that I wanted them to have, those books really didn't exist. And so took ownership of that and started writing kids books and they've been they've been really successful <laughs> that's crazy. and they've been successful not just from a sales perspective mm -hmm. and that's great i appreciate it but more important they've been successful because i've gotten thousands and thousands 
of notes and messages from parents and from kids that say, I just did my first pull-up today. I just passed my math test with 100%. I haven't eaten ice cream in two and a half weeks, and my mom says after a month, I should have some ice cream. What do you think? And and so to, to get this feedback from kids, that's awesome. one of the most rewarding things. What was the first one you wrote? The first one I wrote was Way the Warrior Kid. Right. And it really, it's one of those books that when I thought of the idea, I thought to myself, I cannot believe that this doesn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. It's just it's such an iconic sort of archetypical story. What it is, there's a kid, he's 10 years old, he's in school, it's the end of the school year, the kid can't do any pull-ups, so he gets made fun of. He doesn't know his times tables, so he thinks he's stupid. He's getting picked on by the school bully, Kenny Williamson, by the way. <laughs> and then he also doesn't know how to swim. And so the last day of school, he kind of gets called out for all this stuff. He runs behind the library. He's crying. His life is miserable. And when he gets home that day, he remembers that his Uncle Jake is going to come and stay with him for the summertime. So Uncle Jake was in the SEAL teams. And Uncle Jake shows up. And they're actually staying in, the kid's name is Mark, they're staying in his room. And Uncle Jake says, hey, what do you want to do tomorrow? You want to go play basketball? You want to go for a swim? It's going to be hot. And the kid, Mark, says, well, you know, I can't really go for a swim because I don't know how to swim and I don't know my times table and I can't do any pull-ups and getting picked on. He tells him all of his problems, cries. And Uncle Jake looks at him and says, these problems that you have, we can solve. Mm-hmm. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. And he makes him commit to working out, eating healthy, training in jiu-jitsu, teaches him how to study, teaches him how to swim and makes him overcome his fear of water and so that's what the summer consists of a good training program and the kid realizes that if he's disciplined in the way he behaves he'll have more freedom at school and he'll do better now i think this is a great kids book i actually think this is the primer for extreme ownership that's what i think it is I've given this book to parents, and I said, well, this would be great for your kid, but read it first. Yeah. <laughs> it's very I digestible. One of the best, and I, I don't want to take a lot of time with this yeah. story, but one of the best pieces of feedback I got, and I actually read this letter on my podcast, and I don't normally read someone that's just basically giving me praise, right? I don't, like, say, hey, here, listen. But this guy wrote this letter, and he says, hey, I'm 37 years old. I was drinking. I was overweight. I was out of shape. I was doing crappy at my job. I hadn't been promoted in four years. And I got your book and he says, and I just said to myself, okay, you know what? I'm going to wake up a little bit earlier and you know, I'm going to do a little bit of, and then he stopped drinking and then he started eating right. And he started paying attention to his job and he started working a little bit harder and he started giving effort. And he said, it's been seven months. I've lost 28 pounds. I got promoted at work. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I can't thank you enough. And then he wrote the last line said, and by the way, the book I read was Way of the Warrior Kid. Right. <laughs> and that's another thing that's really important in that sure. book is that Uncle Jake says, you know, you need to follow a warrior code. Mm-hmm. And the kid kind of says, what do you mean? What's a warrior code? And he gives them the examples of the Ranger code, the SEAL Team code, the Marine Corps ethos and values. He gives him those examples and then says, you need to write your own code. Mm-hmm. You need to write down the way you're going to live. And that's the kind of the closing of the book. He writes his own warrior kid mm-hmm. code mm-hmm. that he can live by. And of course, if you're going through life and you're not even sure what you're trying to be, right. well, how are you ever going to be that thing? Right. And so you make that code and kids from all over the world send me pictures of their warrior kid code awesome. and the rules that they're living by. Yeah, it's, it's been a phenomenal experience. Well, down the hall here, my assistant Jeanette, we have bookshelves. And so I get all these letters and emails and this and the other. And I will prescribe someone a book. 
And one of the things I found is I like to give this book to people who I know have kids. And I say, this is a fantastic book. What I recommend is you read it first before you give it to your kid. And every responsible parent will do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what this guy's talking about. And so they read the book and, of course, you know, they realize themselves, I'm not quite living up to this myself. Now I'm going to hand this off to my kid. And all of a sudden, things start to happen. And what I found is a lot of times this. People will make sacrifices and do the right thing for their kids when they won't do it for themselves. And so I've had feedback of people who've lost the weight or have finally done the fundamentals. We're trying to get people to work the fundamentals of a system to generate leads and do the business. And they're not doing it every day. We ask them to write two and a half notes a day. You'd swear I was trying to cure cancer every day, you know. But we're not asking them to write a thousand words. Two and a half notes a day? Personal notes. Meaning personal notes. Hey, Bill, nice meeting you the other day. If you ever need anything in this, let me know. Here's my number. Yep. Yeah, that's a big ask. People pay me a lot of money. We have coaches that call them to do it. We provide 10 million personal notes a month. And I swear on my tombstone, it's going to say, did you write your freaking notes? Okay. And it's like writing notes, making a couple of calls, visiting some of your customers. And because the mind is very powerful, right? And it's like, the problem is writing notes is easy to do. And the problem is it's easier not to do. And we choose this path of least resistance all the time. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think you're in a great spot. You know, for us, I really am only interested in featuring people who've been there and done that when we do this thing. This show is mindset, motivation, methodologies of people who've been there and done that. If you've been on The Apprentice on Tuesday and you're an internet sensation and now your book comes out on Thursday, I'm not interested, right? You've been there, done that. You've been in the battle. You've seen bullets fly. You've buried comrades. You've been there and done that. And now you've been there and done that as a businessman, now as a business leader and so on and so forth. This whole dynamic of our own path of least resistance. I think people are drawn to what you're doing because you're against the path of least resistance. But talk to me a little bit. Somebody's coming to you. They constantly make the wrong choice. They're constantly defaulting to the sleep in. They're constantly defaulting to not write their notes. They're constantly taking the path of least resistance. What's the adult chat that Jocko's going to have with them? So I got asked this on Twitter the other day, something similar. And the funny thing is Twitter's great because you're limited on what you can say. When they changed Twitter from 140 characters to 280, everyone laughed and said, you know, Jocko only uses nine, right? (laughs) But the response to that is, is pretty straightforward. And this is what you need to keep in mind. The path of least resistance leads downhill. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where it goes. I love it. It goes downhill. Yeah. The harder path, it goes uphill. Yeah. It takes you to the top. Yeah. The path of least resistance goes downhill. It's greased up. I mean, it's easy to go down. Mm. There's no bumps. Right. There's no rocks. Plenty of people going There's down there with you. Plenty people going down there. You, you can company. follow them right down there. And they want you to go down there too, by mm. the way. Mm. They want company. Mm-hmm. They don't like to see you going up that hill. No. So just think about that. Do you want to go down the hill? Do you want to end up on the bottom? Or do you want to climb that hill and take the hard right. road and get to the top? So at the end of the day, it gets back to you know making up your mind, deciding what you want, choosing to do it every day, taking that ownership yourself, getting the help you need if there's help needed, right? I mean, you're in jujitsu. You had someone teach you how to Still do the do. moves, and here's an instructor and someone who challenges you, and you're a white belt, and then you're looking to go against the brown belts, and then ultimately you want to go against the black belts. You're looking to find the people who are on the path. I find that when you're successful, other successful people, they recognize it. And when you're on the path to being successful, you will lose associations along the way. Because there's a whole bunch of people 
not only do they want to go down the slippery slope, they want you to go with them, and they're ticked off when you don't. Because misery loves company, right? That's what my mother always said. But I believe when you're going up to the top of the ladder, you see people and you recognize the same traits in successful people. And successful people recognize each other like that. I recognize that discipline. I recognize that mindset. And we all can help each other out. And oh, he's Strong here. I'm strong there. Great. He pulls me up. I pull him up. You know, that kind of a deal. Again, at the end of the day, people have to make the choice. And they have to choose that the life they want to live and the life they're built for is so much better than the life they're choosing to just let happen to them. And at the end of the day, that's the ultimate extreme ownership. You have to make that choice, right? Yeah, and there's a situation I talked about on my podcast when I was putting SEAL platoons, because the last job I had in the SEAL teams was running the SEAL training for the West Coast SEALs. And this isn't the training where you carry boats on your head and all that stuff. The training that I ran was the training where you learn the tactics of being a SEAL. And so we would put these SEAL platoons in really chaotic situations, very, very challenging, total mayhem, explosions going off, paintball flying everywhere, people yelling and screaming. And sometimes in those situations, the leader would get distracted or preoccupied or overwhelmed, and all of a sudden, you'd watch this SEAL platoon and there'd be no leadership, zero. And I would call it the leadership vacuum. There's just nothing happening. And I would tell the younger SEALs, I'd say, hey, you need to step up and lead right now mm. because no one's leading. And if there's a leadership vacuum and you recognize it, you need to step in and fill that leadership vacuum. Well, what's interesting is this happens in your head as well. This mm. happens in your mind. If you're not leading, if you're not actually making the decisions proactively and consciously deciding where you're going to go, well, there's just a leadership vacuum. And guess where you're going to end up on that going down. You're mm. going to end up on the easy path because that's what you're going to trend towards so you can't allow that to happen when you see that leadership vacuum and you have to pay attention because guess what the most interesting thing about the leadership vacuum is it doesn't make any noise there's no one that says hey everyone there's a leadership vacuum right now someone step up and take charge that doesn't happen that's what's so damaging Mm -hmm. about it is that it just occurs and it's a black hole it's a vacuum and no one can really recognize that it's happening if you're not paying attention that's what happens in your head too Mm -hmm. You look up one day and you say, geez, why haven't I made any progress? Why haven't I written the book that I was going to write? Why haven't I made any progress on that? It's because you actively didn't decide you were going to get up early. You were going to do the things you're supposed to do. And when you allow yourself, when you allow your head to be in a vacuum Mm -hmm. with no one actually leading it, that's where you're going to end up. The translation in our vernacular is drift. Mm. You know, nobody decides to be poor, fat, divorced, kids sideways in a crappy business crappy finances. I know very few people who've made that decision. Zig Ziglar used to say before he was speaking, you know, he said, I I lost 37 pounds. And he said, I never ate anything by accident, (laughs) you know? And it's this drift. It's this non-decision, non-decided, and you call it the leadership vacuum, that we just drift towards it. And so I I think it's powerful stuff. And I think that's why, you know, you're an on-purpose guy coming from an on-purpose career. You know, I had the great privilege years ago, you know, you know, when we're doing these speaking tours, a lot of times we're back in the green room meeting some very interesting cats. And years ago, I got to spend an afternoon with General Norman Schwarzkopf. And so, first Iraq war. And he's there, and he, and he, he said something very interesting, because he was saying, he was kind of running over some stuff he was thinking about saying. He was just starting a speaking career at the time. And he said, you know, when we went to fight in Iraq, he said it was the fourth largest army in the world. They had the Republican Guard, which are supposed to be the highly trained troops. He said that the huge army, they're these highly trained guys, you're laughing. He said they had American equipment. 
He said, because we like them better than we like the Iranians. Mm -hmm. So we actually sold them our equipment. So he said, they had a huge army. They had knowledge of the ground. They had our equipment. And the war was over in six days. And I go, well, what gives? He goes, because our guys actually knew how to use it. He goes, we were so prepared and so ready. And down into the details of how we delivered the bombs, the beans, and the bullets. You know, from the quartermasters to the seals to the... We knew how to do it. And that classic example of preparation, meet, and opportunity. That happens, and I think a lot of people with this drift or this vacuum you're talking about, they want to have the opportunity land in their lap, and then they'll go to work. They want to be discovered, and then they'll go to work. Then I'll do the preparation. Once I see it's here in front of me, and the fact of the matter is, you know, you're preparing ahead of time. You know, you look at you, and, and if you were trying to write a book on how to actually follow your career post Navy SEAL, you'd have a hard time doing it, right? I mean, if you say, okay, here's how to build one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Here's how to become a multi-best-selling author. Here's how to make a ton of money doing speaking engagements. And here's how to have all these training programs. Or maybe I'm putting an idea in your head, you'll try to do it. But I believe what happened was tremendous preparation met opportunity. And you've done all this prep because you've been trained it and trained in it and trained it for two decades. And then you kept on those disciplines in private life and the next thing you know, you put your bread out in the water. You're doing podcasting before podcasting was big. You're putting your bread out in the water. But the preparation met the opportunity. And as the market met you with the podcast, as the market met you with the book, now you're an overnight success. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, when I get asked that question, and I actually recently got asked that question, and it's actually very similar to when I was over at your office, you guys had your values up mm -hmm. on the wall. Right. Right? And this is the way you run your business. Right. Well, when people ask me about how did I make these businesses successful that I run, well, it's easy. I already did write a book about it. Mm -hmm. The book is called Extreme Ownership. Right. The book is called The Dichotomy Leadership. The book is called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Yeah. The principles that I used to teach to the SEALs on how to lead right. is exactly what I've been teaching companies for the last seven years. And those principles are what I do inside the businesses right. that I own. What do I do? Cover and move. What does that mean? It's teamwork. What I do? Simple. That's rule number two. Keep things simple. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to do anything complicated. What I'm trying to do is very simple and straightforward. Prioritize and execute. I've got a bunch of things going on. Going to pick the biggest, mm -hmm. most impactful things, and those are where I'm going to focus myself, my brain, and my resources. Mm -hmm. And then the final one is decentralized command, which is I'm going to let my subordinate leaders lead. Mm -hmm. They're going to get the broad guidance from me. They're going to know what the mission is, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to micromanage them mm -hmm. because I don't have time. So I have people that work for me that are outstanding, mm -hmm. that are leaders themselves, and they're going to run things. And then the last one is ownership. Hmm. When something goes wrong, I'm not pointing my finger at anybody else. Mm -hmm. I'm not blaming any, and not only am I not blaming anyone else, I'm not even blaming anything else. Sure. I'm not making any excuses at just all. Just is what it is. I'm going to take ownership of it and then I'm going to figure out how to fix it. Because by the way, when I'm saying, well, it was the market, that's not under my control. So what can I do? It's I can just right. keep doing the same thing and I'm going to continue to fail. Mm -hmm. If it was my people, well, then it's their fault and that's not my fault. No, you're actually the leader. If there's something wrong with the market, you adapt, mm -hmm. you fix, you move. If there's something wrong with the economy, guess what? We're going to downsize. We're going to get in a different market. We're going to move. We're going to maneuver. If it's my people and I've got people on my team that aren't worth their salt, guess what? They're not going to be working for me very long. Of course, I'm going to put the effort into coach them and train them up. But if they can't or if they're not capable of doing the job, they're not going to be working for me. So apply those principles mm. to your businesses. You're going to do well. I feel like I need to go out and do about 50 push-ups, just so <laughs> you know. I'm fired up right now. I'm, this is great stuff. It's very obvious to me success leaves clues. And it's very obvious why you're doing so well. I think you're a needed voice in the marketplace. 
and I really appreciate it. I love the fact that you're doing stuff for kids. I love the fact that you're doing stuff for leaders. You know, we have a, a very diverse audience listening to this today. I love the fact that you're doing this stuff. It's a needed discipline. We got gaps in parenting. We got gaps in leadership. We got gaps in society. And uh, I just love what you're doing. I'm going to ask you a few questions. We ask everybody who's on the podcast just off the cuff, get another little insight into Jocko. And we kind of always do this. I have five little questions and uh, we'll just throw them at you off the shoulder. Okay. Number one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Discipline equals freedom. Who gave you that? You can find it throughout literature in the world. You can find it in the Bible. You can find Mm -hmm. it in the ancient. I never really took it from them. Mm. I stumbled upon it myself. And then once I started saying it, I saw it everywhere. Interesting. Yeah. Truth leaves clues too. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I wish I was a better guitar player. You know, I would say music is probably the number one answer. Sing on stage or play an instrument is probably the number one of all the most successful people so any kids listening in stay with the piano lessons number three what book has been uh, most instrumental in your life about face by colonel david hackworth huh i haven't heard that one what's that all about it is a 800 page book about a guy named colonel david hackworth who was a very young soldier he was at the tail end of world war ii didn't fight and then he was in korea he was in vietnam he was a battalion commander in vietnam he was one of the most highly decorated soldiers and he is the first high-ranking officer in the vietnam war that said if we don't change the way we are fighting this war we are going to lose Mm. and it really had a big impact on the public opinion of the war and he got drummed out of the army in a month they got rid of him. But this book, it, this book is about his life. Mm. But what this book really is, is a leadership book. Mm. And every single page has a leadership lesson, the way that he led, the way that he mm. thought. And it's a book that I read over and over again. As a matter of fact, my last deployment to Iraq, I read that book every single night. I would read from that book. Well, how old were you when you first got your hands on that? I've tried to answer this question for a while of when I saw it for the first time or when I started reading it. I think I was about halfway through my Navy career, so that would put me at, you know, around 27, Still growing, still learning, right? That's great stuff. Okay, fantastic. I haven't heard that one, and I'm going to dig it up. Okay, two more. What movie do you watch over and over again? If it's on, I know you're not a big TV watcher, but there's one movie, if it's on, you'll stop and take a look at even a part of it. The series, The Pacific, oh, which yeah. is about the Pacific Interesting. The campaign. It's the brother movie of Band of Brothers. Sure. I prefer the Pacific for some reason, but they're both outstanding. Why do you prefer that? I'm just curious, because I am a fanatic about Band of Brothers, but why do you like the Pacific? I'm not 100% sure why. One of the things that I really liked about it was when I watched it for the first time, I was actually on a plane. I had the nice earphones, and I was really staring. It was a dark plane, and I was staring at my computer at point-blank range. It was right in front of my face, and one of the scenes was showing a landing on one of the islands in the Pacific, and it was very quiet and it was one of these landings where the Japanese decided they weren't going to resist the landing they were going to wait and I remember this feeling of I'm watching and they're patrolling through the jungle and you know 100% they're about to get contacted by the enemy and the feeling that that gave me reminded me of being in Ramadi you're walking down the street and you know 100% that you're going to get contacted Mm. and you just don't know when and I was watching this and I realized as I was watching it that this was one of the best portrayals of combat and there was no shooting going on, mm. but the the suspense that you feel and the anticipation, anticipation yeah. was so 
immediate for me watching it that it just left an impression about wow. how good that movie was from a realism perspective. Well, I know realism. I wouldn't call it contact innings. I would be calling it uh, wetting me pants. So that's good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Unbelievable. Last but not least, what's on your bucket list? You got one thing left out there in your bucket list, something you always want to do? My bucket list is two things. It's infinite and it's empty. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy where I'm at, but I'm gonna, it's got a lot more things I'm going to try. Going to go with the flow and see what's happening. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for being here today. I really feel like what you're doing is helping a lot of folks. I think you helped a lot of our folks listening today. I also want to thank you for your service and uh, the 20 years. I'm in a proud Irishman. I carry a phone every day with an American flag on it because I know I came to this country and I had opportunity that I didn't have where I grew up. I came with 92 books in my wallet and and then got into a motorcycle accident and started off broke as could be. But I know it was a whole bunch of folks like you that afforded an opportunity for a fellow like me to go and not only change his life, change his parents' life, his family of origin's life, and then create an opportunity for my kids. And so uh, in this world, there are men with guns, and we need people to stand the task for us. I just think it's not said often enough. As much as America is a very patriotic country, it's not said often enough. So you represent a group of millions of people that do that stuff and serve for all the rest of us, and I really appreciate all you've done for those two decades. And I like the fact that you're serving now and blessing people. And so thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And it was an honor for me to serve. But let's not forget that what I did, I wanted to do. And also, more important, let's not forget that there's thousands and thousands of people that made the ultimate sacrifice Mm -hmm. for our freedom here. And that's one last reason to get out there and give it everything you've got. Beautiful. I love it. Well, we're going to pass this over to David Lally, who's probably going to read letters that you don't read out on your podcast about how great you are. We love reading those things out over here. But uh, David's going to take us away. Thanks for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. It's great meeting you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having coming. me on. Yes, I do have some notes to read from our great listeners, but I first wanted to say thanks to you both for today's episode. I'm definitely inspired to be more disciplined in my life. Alice M. Galati from Spokane, Washington writes, Dear Mr. Buffini, Just a note to sincerely thank you for your weekly podcasts. Listening to these every day have and are changing me in ways I never dreamed possible. Your passion for helping others become better people is an amazing gift shared for free with strangers like me. Best, Alice M. Galati. P.S. So far, number 120, You Are a Diamond, is my favorite. I listen to it over and over again. And Avi Wilhelm from Lakewood, New Jersey says, Dear Brian, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your podcasts. They inspire, motivate, and empower me every time I listen. Your energy, passion, and positive attitude are infectious. Please keep doing what you're doing. I know you're helping a lot of people out there. God bless you, Avi. P.S. I really enjoyed taking note of your success. Alice and Avi, thank you so much for letting us know the show is impacting you. And keep the notes coming. Your notes, emails, and reviews let us know what you're enjoying and help us spread the word of the show. And as I sign off today, I'll leave you, as usual, with a little Irish blessing from Brian's mum, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 